community learned that theirs was the county with the country's most pedestrian auto accidents and deaths per capita. People came together, identified high-risk intersections, and began to study traffic patterns. Some researchers and media and artificial intelligence techies joined the group. They placed video cameras on utility poles and designed software to crunch the hours of media data to find patterns. Then they moved the setup to other high-risk intersections. A local problem solved by the community, automated, and shared. That was my first appreciation of community-focused research and action. Since then, I have looked for examples of community problem-solving, research, and resulting technology. My friend and colleague, Ellen Schultz, knows of my interest and introduced me to Isabel Barber. Isabel introduces herself as the director of Truth Teller Consulting, where she provides leadership and support for equity-focused public health work and explores how storytelling can make our lives and our world better. In her 20-plus year career, she has worked in community, county, and state public health, focusing on systems change and health equity. Her work has included a broad array of public health topics and strategies, including violence prevention, cross-sector partnerships, positive youth development, community organizing, coordinated school health, marijuana legalization, and public health modernization. Isabel has a master's in public health from UCLA and lives in the woods with her husband and two wayward dogs. Welcome to Health Hats, the podcast. I'm Danny Van Leeuwen, a two-legged cisgender old white man of privilege who knows a little about a lot of health care and a lot about very little. We will listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome circus of health care. Let's make some sense of all of this. Hi, Danny. Hi, Isabel. <laughs> It's lovely to see you. It's Where are you, you really? I am in southeastern Connecticut in a little town called Old Lyme. Old Lyme. What's the funnest work you're doing now? I'm so glad you asked that question. I have been able to get into kind of a whole new sphere of work with a collaborative that I work with here called the Health Improvement Collaborative of Southeastern Connecticut. And we were able to get a grant with funds from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation that's really focused on strengthening our collaborative and advancing racial equity in the region. Long story short, part of that was really trying to do some resource distribution and getting some of those grant dollars to community-based organizations that were actually forwarding racial equity in the region. And one of the things that I am getting to do now is working with each of those groups to 
tell their story via a recorded audio segment or a podcast. And it has taken me down a whole new fun and exciting road to understanding audio editing, to using my storytelling skills, which I've been working on in a new way. And I have to say, it's really amazing to build something with people. It really changes the relationship in a positive way. And so what are you building? We're building these podcast segments to really shine a light on the work that these organizations do. A lot of them are smaller organizations, Uh so they're more easily overlooked, but they shouldn't be because they make a huge impact in the community. Can you give us a taste of a couple of them? Sure. The first one that's out now is with a group called Writer's Block, and they work with youth primarily in the New London area, primarily youth of color, and a lot of of queer and non-binary youth to really reflect social issues on the stage. And so it was amazing to tell the story of of the folks that direct that group who came on as younger folk in the organization and really the impact of doing that work in a pandemic when there's a lot of uncertainty in providing a safe space for youth. So that's one. And then I just did some taping and I'm doing a lot of audio editing with a group called SCORE. I'm going to get the acronym wrong. It's basically a racial justice group in southeastern Connecticut that grew out of the Black Lives Matter effort. And I talked with their five directors, did a Zoom interview with them, and they just all found each other in this moment of history that we all experienced. So there's a lot there, and they're really connecting with the community and looking at the school district and the police and being a resource for the community. As a result of having each told their story on a podcast, does that then lead to that they have an ongoing relationship with each other as far as a mastermind group or support group or some kind of collaboration? amongst them? Yeah, that was part of the effort prior to the podcast was bringing them together. And we really wanted, we, the collaborative and me working with the collaborative, wanted to not make people run through hoops to get dollars, but say, we recognize what you're providing and we want to help you in the most concrete way that we can, which is to give you dollars to help support your work. We came together a couple of times. We have an email thread where people share information and there's an interest with folks listening to each other's podcasts. I think the podcast piece was an offering, a further offering of partnership in that we wanted to provide something that would allow other collaborative members to hear about the work going on in the community and also provide something for these organizations to show funders what they're doing. It's another, perhaps more charismatic way 
besides a report or telling their story via writing. And so is the funding for organization operations, is the funding for research, is the funding for living expenses? What's the array of when they look for funding, these groups? What are they funding? They're not a homogeneous group, so it depends right. on the organization. So it's all different. A lot of these groups provide mutual aid to the community. Okay. A number of them are advocates doing policy advocacy. Okay. Some of them are providing specific resources to equip teachers and administrators to address racial equity in schools. So it's a little different with all of them. Some of them are providing training to community leaders on being better allies related to foreign racial equity. We put out a request for what they wanted to use the funds for. We wanted to see something that got at some systems change, something that would start to at least start to impact the conversation to forward change in the community beyond providing one-to-one services. Understanding that's often part of meeting the community where they're at, but we wanted to see something that helped really raise the profile of forwarding racial equity in the community. So when you talk about funding, are you talking about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, 50? What's no, the these range? Were, the, these were many grants. These yeah. were small grants. Grants like a thousand, five thousand dollars. Okay, okay, yeah. So five thousand dollars, and then we are actually working with them to give them a thousand dollars more to help support their time in participating in the podcast. It's always interesting to me what can be done with how much. So what, to me, you're speaking to is that small amounts of money can make a big difference for small, diverse organizations. I think that it helps. I think that larger amounts of money could make a bigger difference. I'm not saying that small is better. I just know that with our total allocation, there was limit. Right, and right. You and work really with are, what you got. You work with what you got. And honestly, our goal for this from the collaborative standpoint was that we want to do better. We want to be a resource and a source of movement towards racial equity in this part of Connecticut. And so we want to partner with people who are effectively doing that work to learn from them. So we right. We call these partnership grants, and we put very few hoops for folks to go through because we weren't coming towards them as a funder. We were coming towards them as someone who wanted a partner. Yeah. And that means that, like, when there are challenges or problems or somebody's not showing up, 
I might call them and say, are you okay? What's happening? How can I help you? Because that's what you do with a partner that you don't necessarily do with a grantee. And it changes the relationship in a way that I think is really positive. And I'd love to see, I'd love to see funders approach grant making in that style with a more of a partnership angle. So this is very interesting. Say more about these characteristics of partners versus grantees, grantors. I think that our system in this country is if you have the money, you have the power. And I think when we follow that, we really fall into supporting white supremacy because there's been so much to disadvantage other groups from having the money, so therefore not having as much power. And I think what we really wanted to do was say, we have this money, it it came in a grant. We want to give it some of it to you because we can, and not because we want you to do anything different than what you're doing, but you deserve to be recognized and you are part of the change that we want to be part of and to forward with you. We want to be a true ally. We want to have you come to our meetings and tell us how we can do better and tell us what's wrong and tell us this new governing document that we've created, what's wrong with it. Help us, tell us hard truth so we can be better. And I think it's just changing the relationship. It's recognizing the power that we all have to be part of the change that we want to see. Brilliant. So I'm going to make a statement and then tear it apart. Okay. My experience. And so what am I talking about in my experience? Really, I'm talking about in my experience working with teams. So meaning I work for a company or an organization and I am a boss and I have staff. So this is not the situation you're talking about, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. And what I found that when I started working with a new group, so I've been either blessed or not blessed to have changed jobs often. And whether it's my attention span or whether I got laid off or fired, moved around quite a bit. But every time I had new staff and I would say, how can I help you? It was very difficult for them to answer that question. What do you need? And part of that, I think, was that there was a perceived power dynamic I was the boss, and they weren't used to bosses saying that, and that they would feel like their work was scut work, and they couldn't really ask the boss to do scut work. And it would take six to eight months for them to get comfortable 
saying, this is what I need help with. So my question for you is, do you feel like the groups that you're working with are readily know what help they need or does it take them some time to think about what help do we need? They know what they need. They are working to respond to community needs. They are leaders in their organizations are small, but really powerful with people power. They hear from the community what the community needs. So they have their ear to the track to hear what's needed. And I think also part of what I'm hearing and what you say is that we have a lot of things in our culture and in professional culture more generally that make it really hard and unsafe to be vulnerable. And when we ask for help, we're being vulnerable. And so the other piece of this for me is we've done a lot of work in our collaborative with making safe and brave spaces to be vulnerable and to not have all the answers. And I think that there needs to be more of that in organizations and in other sectors because I think we'll be stronger and we'll be more real and we'll be more grounded in what we need and how to do good work. I love it. You talked about being a boss, and you're also an advocate, and you're somebody who has spoken really openly about having a chronic illness and how to be best served as someone with that illness. And I think that's an example of what I'm talking about. There's vulnerability in having a need. And when we can articulate what our vulnerability is, we can help other people because we all have vulnerabilities. And I think there's a lot of pressure to not be as truthful about those things. It's interesting because personality-wise, I am fortunate that I came from a family with secrets. And in the process of growing up in a family with secrets, I became allergic to them. And so I developed a style that has worked for me where I wear my life on my sleeve. No secrets. And while, as you can imagine, sometimes it's, a little scary to be that way. It is dollars to donuts effective. It's a gift that I turned out this way to, to be to that. And as a matter of fact, I'm working on my annual year in review episode where yesterday I'm full of myself and I know that I'm really good at what I do. And some days I think I'm as good as they come. And, but I also know that I don't know the wake I leave and I don't know the wake meaning like a boat 
the impact I have that I can't see. And I need some friction between my brain and my mouth. And, and so I have a coach. And, and so I taped a session, an hour, which was year in review and what's next. And I was talking to my wife about it this morning, you know, that I'm going to publish this. And people who work with me are going to get a glimpse into this process of reflection that I go through to do the work that I do and the help that I get from a coach. And hands down, like I said, hands down, it's worth it. And just so people can see the value of getting help, the work we do as advocates, activists, is tough. And it's very political in the political in the sense of how do you get stuff done with lots of opinions and forces at play um, and Uh stakeholders. That's what I mean by political. And that it's helpful to have somebody who appreciates you, knows you, and isn't afraid to tell you the difficult, put shit in your face that you need to hear. Well, yeah, we we all need plenty of opportunities for humility, right? It's like- no kidding. Yeah, music's that for me. I'm a musician, and, <laughs> and I'm really good at what I do, and not so much music. So that's my humility. It's great. I think for me, I've always worked and tried to work with people who looked different than me. And it comes from growing up, I think, in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, and having friends that didn't look like me and feeling really comfortable with that. And and I think as I've aged, and especially I think with this latest move, I'm very conscious of how I present to people that I deeply respect and care about who don't look like me. And I am very aware of what people with my skin color have done and have how they have hurt people. And I am not afraid to spend the time to earn it because I think that's part, if you're really going to care and you're really going to contribute, it's that's something you need to do and recognize. You need to understand how you present in the world and how that's maybe not reflective of all your insides, but so what? Like you, you've got to put in the work. And I feel really grateful to have found some people who have let me do that with them. And, and one relationship in particular where it was just clear when I first met this person that like, their look at me was like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> and it, and I was like, who the fuck am I? So putting in the time 
And it's just interesting now to text with this person or have a phone call with them and the tone is really different. It's being willing to be vulnerable and that humility of, I don't assume that I'm a gift to you. And I know I look like a lot of things that have been painful. White women are doing some pretty terrible things to this country right now in support also of white men. It's reflexivity. It's like knowing where the you are here map of where you are in the world. And I think that's my daily humility of just, yeah, understanding that it takes a repeated practice to be our best selves. We've got to practice that every day and we get so many opportunities every day to be our best selves or not. And that's something I think about a lot as just a human. It's something I think about as a parent. And uh, it also means we can always get better. Now a word about our sponsor, Abridge. Use Abridge to record your doctor visit. Push the big pink button and record the conversation. Read the transcript or listen to clips when you get home. Check out the app at abridge.com. A-B-R-I-D-G-E dot com. Or download it on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Record your healthcare conversations. Let me know how it went. We've talked for a half an hour. We can either continue because I don't have something for the next half hour, or we could stop here and resume at another time. What's your pleasure? I'm okay talking for a bit longer. I feel like we're talking about some stuff that's really important. And I think that it has implications for working in community and for grant making. I'd love to hear more about how the themes of what we're talking about of humility for your work in terms of patient-centered care and understanding that we see huge disparities along racial and ethnic lines around who gets treated, whose pain gets taken care of, all of it. And I'm interested in the work with PCORI and other ways of how that's discussed, of how that's thought about it, and if it's prioritized. Let me take a stab at some of that. In general, in my work, I usually introduce myself as that I'm a two-legged, cisgender, old white man of privilege. And I get invited to sit at many tables because of the fact that I'm health hats and that people can check off a lot of boxes by including me. When I got appointed to the board, PCORI board, I felt 
elated. I wanted it and I worked hard. I lobbied hard to get a seat. And then when I got it, it was like, if I was making these decisions, I wouldn't have selected me. And so I was on the phone, actually, to the same person I was on the phone with a half an hour ago. I have friends and colleagues who live lives that I don't. And whether that's of color, of homelessness, of transition, and there are people that I can go to and say, I'm struggling with something and I can be completely uncensored and just lay it out in whatever words come out and we'll figure out what's going on and, you know, how to say it more sensitively and a different perspective anyway. And so when I got appointed and I talked to my friend Neely, who I just, again, just spoke to a few minutes ago, to say that I'm very concerned about this. And I was thinking of, oh my God, should I just turn this down? Because I think they ought to be appointing a more diverse board. And she was like, oh God, Danny, are you kidding? You can say stuff that we can't. And you'll be heard. And you listen and whatever. Anyway, she was like very encouraging and continues to be an important advisor to me in my work. And okay, so that's one thing. Then, And I'm assuming that yeah. this person you're talking about is a woman of color. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and then there's, okay, now I, I have this seat. Oftentimes with advocacy work, the work is to generate curiosity about the Kool-Aid. And PCORI is an organization that has drunk the Kool-Aid. And this is the poison Kool-Aid that was used on the ranch in No, Texas. I'm talking oh, about Kool-Aid? <laughs> the Kool-Aid of health equity. Okay. I don't have to talk anybody into anything. These are people, I'm working with people who are eyeball deep in the issues of equity and research about equity. And they are ahead of me. But I am sitting in a position of power. I vote on millions of dollars of money. I 
help strategize where the organization is going to go. And it's a very different problem. Like, we've all drunk the Kool-Aid. Now what do we do? Or I'm sitting in this seat of power. What do I do with it? Hence the coach. It's a very different problem. How to spend this money? How do we recognize success? There's just so many different ways to go. There's so many demands. There's so many needs. And so I really enjoy the problem of how do I leverage this seat that I sit in to advance issues of community engagement, health equity, public health, and support organizations such as you're talking about? Small organizations that are not equipped to look for big bucks. It takes so much capacity to apply for big bucks. I don't know. I don't know specifically about the grants that Pecori offers. It takes Um, a lot. It takes a lot. And so what about that? How do you build partnerships? So uh, partnerships between communities and researchers. Yeah, anyway. So my sandbox is fascinating. Have you found an answer on how to do that? There are many answers. There are many, many answers of creating cataloging, disseminating tools that organizations that are engaging in community research can use. Both tools for the researchers and the community organizations because it's tough for everybody. Partnerships are tough. There is nobody who's got a leg up on being an effective partner unless maybe they've grown up in a family and life of partnerships. It's hard work. And there's there really isn't a while there are some general truths, there isn't really a roadmap that works for everybody in my experience. In my work for state government in Oregon, I created a lot of partnerships or several, I should say, partnerships with other state agencies and public health. 
with the understanding that we can't reach our population health goals if we don't have other sectors participation in supporting health in their own spheres. So yeah. for example, in education or in transportation. And my experience with this is that partnerships, even at that high level, right? Like big departments, they're based on relationships. Like they're based on trust. Yes. Between people and trust. And yes. then there has to be buy-in at the highest levels to have the rest of the organization follow suit. Yes. And yes. So those are absolutely part of what I, I had agree. To, part of what I had to do was I think there are always people who are like more receptive and early adopters. And there has to be a, a there has to be something in it for them. Like it has to meet their transportation right. goals around bike and pedestrian access or around education, chronic absenteeism, and really thinking about like, why would somebody want to partner with us is important. But then, I don't know, the, the, it moves forward with the speed of trust. And that's right. Um, I'm with you on that. So I would say that there are some fundamental truths like trust and relationships, which you cannot partner without. Sure. And then from there, and there probably are a couple of more, like you just said, leadership buy-in. But I would also then say that from there, it's hyper-local. It depends on who the organizations are, what their goals are, what they're trying to accomplish, their cultural context, their their history, their their fund. And what I find fascinating is that the more profound and understanding you get about the communities you're working with, the less homogenous they look themselves. And, oh, yeah. And so that this idea of disparities goes as high as you want to see it and as low as you want to see it. And when I say low, two people in an office versus black and white, you know, that there are issues up and down. Anyway. When I think about patient-centered primary care and equity, there's a lot of different topics there, but one of the things that our collaborative has looked at, and we have a section of our collaborative called the Black Health Collective, has really looked at Black maternal mortality and infant mortality. Oh, and yeah. that's one of these longstanding public health and healthcare like horrors. And when 
my my colleague who runs this particular piece, Stephanie Clark, when she talks with women about their experience, it's horrific. It's so horrific. I just feel like this is this is how is there are some things that are just really clear. They're not hard. And this is one of them. Having Smug black doulas makes a huge difference in these outcomes. Yes. Fun that. Yeah. <laughs> but you were saying you had an out, you had a. No, I'm just session. saying uh, I, uh, I had an episode a few months ago about disparities in maternal health. How do you think showing vulnerability supports partnership development? Oh, it absolutely. It's grease. I think that vulnerability is grease to partnerships. As I was saying that I am blessed that I ended up with a personality of no secrets. You can't like have no secrets and not share your seamy side. Because what is vulnerability but... I don't know. Or I made a mistake. Yeah. Or, I mean, that vulnerability is letting it all hang out and and having some, like, a sense of humor about foibles. And it's a lot easier, I find, that a wall might come down three inches if there's people feel like the other is human. Yeah. Do you think that, um, that telling the truth is a big part of that? And that I, I named my company Truth Teller Consulting because I feel like being able to be vulnerable and tell the truth especially at the time when I started, which was during the Trump administration, felt like a radical act. And really centering that was centering a lot of what I think makes the world better and how we make change in an authentic way. So yeah, I'm hearing some of that in what you're saying as well. How does how does this conversation serve you? I think that it is helpful to talk with you as someone I don't know but who is open to talking to me about themes in both of our work related to vulnerability related to partnership related to telling your truth and being who you are. I think that those are themes and conversations that need to happen in philanthropy in particular. I think they're very big themes in, in activist circles as well with both of 
your philanthropic and your activist hat on, I would imagine that there's a lot of synergy for you with those themes. Those themes are very important and personal to me in terms of how I've developed and managed transition in my own life. And I don't think that we often take the time and space to really talk about these things that are very essential. So I appreciate having some time and space with you to talk about these things that are essential. How about you? Bless you. Thank you. Yeah, similar. For whatever reason, my work takes place on a national scale. And one of the challenges, I think, in being full of myself and having this stage playground that I have is staying in touch and keeping my ear to the ground. So one of the things in my role in PCORI before I was on the board, so I've been on the board for a little more than a year. And before that, I was a reviewer of funding requests, and I did that for about seven or eight years. And I was co-chair of an advisory panel. And what I learned is that the people around the table had experiences really different than mine, really different. And they were all doing brilliant stuff. And brilliant stuff that was important to me because it fed my fire. It was inspiring and inspiration produces energy. And because it got my gray cells percolating in a different way than they had been percolating the minute before. Yeah which is invaluable. And I feel like my podcasting also serves that purpose. I find somebody's doing some really good work, interesting work. I'm curious about it. Hey, let's record a chat. And the way my brain works is that if I were to read a report you wrote, Actually, I would forget it pretty much right after I read it. And I will forget this conversation once we're done with it. But in the process of producing the podcast, I will hear it again and again, and it'll go from whatever part of the brain that I lost it from into a part of the brain that retains it. Hmm. And I then can rediscover the pearls 
and then incorporate what I've learned into the work that I do. It's just the way my brain is. And doing that, that's one of the things that's very cool to me about having MS is it's a disease of the nervous system. And where it's really wonderful to create new pathways. And music is great because music is always creating new pathways. But I feel like this kind of stuff also creates new pathways. And I can like actually see it and feel it happening. And then I end up with something different than what I started with, which is a hoot. I think that's really profound. And I relate to it as somebody who struggles with severe and persistent depression and what depression does to the brain and affects the memory. It is pretty stunning. And I am pretty good and I'm pretty managed at this point, but don't always know from day to day. And I feel like you might be able to relate to this if the bottom will hold, if I can function well yeah. or not. Yeah. And, and I think that when we get to talk in this way, it does, it wakes up parts of the brain that are really healthy, that respond to, again, if you and I were trying to have a super professional, like, here are our objectives, we're going to talk about this meeting, I don't think it would light up the brain the way that it does for us to just talk about what makes the work real and nourishing and good and what could make it better. So, yeah, it's great. I mean, (laughs) I feel when I think about my mission, what I'm, what I'm trying to accomplish, I think a big part of what I'm trying to accomplish is learning what works. And a lot of learning what works is just trying stuff and adapting. And then, oh, wow, this worked. Cool. Okay, I'm going to do more of that. Or this didn't work. But now six months later, things are different. Let me try that again. Maybe it'll work now. (laughs) I have a progressive thing going on. and. I feel like my life is about adapting. There's stuff that I want to do, goddammit. And there are periods where I just can't. And while I will spend a few minutes feeling sorry for myself, I find that kind of boring. And I would, I'm fortunate enough that I have this constant. Okay, try something else. You know what I mean? It's That didn't work. That didn't work. That's okay. Try something else. Yeah. And it's a little frenetic sometimes, but it keeps it, keeps it moving. I think it's hard to keep it moving, and I, I'm glad to hear you have a way to do that because I think, yeah, just that feeling of, this isn't working and the panic. Yeah. 
that happens. Oh, totally. I'm a like a two in the morning. I'm pathologically <laughs> optimistic during the day. And then yeah. at two in the morning, not so much. I know all about that 2 a.m. I know yeah. all about it. It's it's like, why? Oh, God. Yeah. Hey, this has been wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much. And I would, I would welcome the opportunity to say, let's do this again in three months and see what's changed. Or yeah. what did we I learn different? Or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. We've talked about some pretty enduring themes, but I think I, so. I, I'm happy to do that. Yeah. Great. Yeah, let's have fun. I know and it will I, be I, a hoot I, to figure out. <laughs> Thank you, Danny. I'll look forward to talking again. Yeah. And thanks so much for your time. Take care, Isabel. Bye. You too. Bye. Do unto others. Be the change. Each three simple words. Yet you're never there. You can't check them off a list. Starting with my wife, I associate with people who help create the space for me to be my best self, treat others as I want to be treated, and be the change. I'm grateful to Isabel Barber for sharing her journey, philosophy, and challenges. How have you created space to be your best self in your advocacy? Share in the comments in the show notes. Thanks. the show notes, previous podcasts, and other resources through my website, www.health-hats.com. Please subscribe and contribute. If you like it, share it. Thanks. See you around the block.